So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, July the 7th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 214. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. I'm really glad that you're here spending your time with me and hopefully learning something new about bees each and every Friday. So if you want to know what we're going to discuss today, please look down in the video description below and everything we're going to talk about is listed in order. And many thanks, by the way, to Adam Holmes, who puts the timestamps and links to topics down in the comment section so that you can not waste your time and zip directly to the topic that you're interested in. What's going on outside right now? Well, it's been a really hot week for starters. But now, thank goodness, it's cooling down. Look, long sleeves. It's 85% relative humidity, but it's raining and there's storms coming through. That's really good too. It's 76 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 24 degrees Celsius. The winds are three miles per hour. So moderate winds, not bad at all. And the air quality, the fires from Canada, it's good. We're at a 2.5 PM, whatever that means. Is that parts per million or something? But the particulates in the air are not bad. So now you're free to do anything you want outside for those of you who haven't experienced the smoke good for you and i know a lot of you are in really hot weather right now and some of the things we're going to talk about are very important and uh, we want to keep your bees productive and surviving through the heat through the dearth things like that so if you want to know how to submit your own uh, topic for consideration for future q a's please go to the way to be.org and there's a page, the way to be, you fill out the form, and then I'll think about it. It just depends on whether or not it's pertinent to the time of year. Maybe it's something several people have asked. I'm trying to target uh, as many listeners as possible. This is also a podcast on Podbean and iHeartRadio and many others. So just get on your podcast and do a search, the way to be. T-H-E-W-A-Y-T-O-B-E-E. -E. All right, let's jump right into it. The very first uh, question today comes from Peg Murphy. That's her YouTube channel name. You mentioned that you use an inner cover that does not have a notch, which has the effect that the queen would then lay in the bottom box exclusively? Question mark. Did I get that right? What does this do for moisture and airflow? So I want to clear this up because for Peg and a lot of others, uh, they don't understand why I'm suggesting no top venting, no upper entrances. And there are considerations, however, right? So if you're going to put a cover on, first of all, and that was the, the thumbnail for today's episode, I want to show you this one first because it's just a lot of fun. See all the bird comb on that? If you're pulling up your inner cover, and that's what these are, there's an inner cover, then there's an outer cover that goes over the top of it. And that's so the outer cover, of course, doesn't glue itself down to the inner cover, but you have to pry these up. Notice the edges on this are the same thickness everywhere. And then, of course, this facilitates being able to put a feeder, like a rapid round or a bee buffet or something like that, on top of your inner cover to feed the bees down below, completely enclosed and protected from the weather and so on. But here's the thing. I'm going to pull up one of my old covers. Because I used to do it. I used to do the venting. So when you see this cover, you see the end. There's a groove right here. And I even cut this myself, by the way, because the cover I bought didn't have one. And look, the bees propolized all the cuts that I made. So we have this entrance, and the bees were trying to seal it up. You flip it down. They were venting, because this is sitting on the top box of your hive. 
flip it up, you are not venting. So I used it both ways. See all the beeswax remnants here and then the propolis over here. So what does it do? The whole point was, and this is interesting on a lot of different levels, because we assume that when it's really hot outside, your bees have to be vented through the top. I mean, you would open them up and get that hot air flowing through just like in your house. A lot of old houses, you see these four square houses and there are three stories and the third story might have a cupola sticking up on top and then they open those windows a little bit, leave the front door open down on the first floor and what happens? All the hot air evacs out through the top and you have cool air coming in. They also surrounded their houses with big porches, which could be a little bit like the hive visors that we put on our hives here. Um, and it's counterproductive for the bees. And so here's what I want to talk about related to that. Uh, first of all, and this comes from, I'm always learning, so I'm always asking questions of people. When I find someone that lives in a really hot climate, I always want to know how they're configured, how their bees are doing. And your bees in hot, dry climates are still trying to retain humidity levels inside the hive. It's true. So if you put a vent in the top of your hive, you're not, because it mentions here the humidity levels, they want that humidity in there. And here's the thing, the bees can control the humidity levels. This took me years to learn uh, because I simply configured my hive the way all the other hives were that I'd looked at. Um, and of course, they all were notched and talked about what we're talking about right now, vent or no vent. And I'm going to say, should you vent? Should you not vent? And my answer is yes. That's ambiguous. And here's why. If you do not insulate, your beehive. In other words, if you don't have an insulated outer cover and you don't have an insulated inner cover and all you have is the telescoping wooden cover with that thin inner cover on, you need to vent. And that's summer and winter, right? And the reason is because first of all, those outer covers get really hot. And I've done thermal scans on them, even here where I live, where it doesn't get that hot, they're at 130 degrees Fahrenheit plus. That's hot. There is nothing interrupting the transfer of that heat into your hive. So if you don't vent, you're going to really cook the top box, or the bees are going to go into hyper overdrive, trying to accommodate the movement of air and trying to keep what? Their brood humidified. So it really challenges your bees. Now, if you insulate the top, you do not vent. And the reason is because in the winter time, we don't worry then about condensation forming on the inner cover and uh, directly above your bees and above your cluster. There's no venting. No dew point gets achieved directly over your bees. The dew point occurs on and condensation forms on the inside of the side walls of your hive, which is no problem. So the reason I was talking with someone in the desert Southwest and it was a really hot day and she was saying that she even closes down her entrance reducers. So, and there's no top venting. And I thought, wow, that's counterintuitive because uh, it's so hot. But the point was the brood was drying out. So by having an insulated cover, not venting the top and letting the bees control the humidity levels inside, which they do, they have to have access to fresh water to do it. And of course, they then preserve uh, the food and resources that they're providing for their developing larvae. So this is really important. When you vent through the top on these really hot days, you're dehumidifying the interior of the hive, which gives the bees a whole new set of challenges. 
So the thing is, honeybees have been stress tested by people that are scientifically minded. They wanted to know what honeybees could endure. In other words, a good sized colony of bees in a single box. If they put them out in temperature extremes and they did these tests in Hawaii, um, how hot could the bees manage? In other words, without upper venting and with upper venting. And without upper venting, they demonstrated as long as they had access to fresh water, that's key. They could maintain humidity levels in the hive and they could also spread that condensation over the surface of the brood areas, which are the most critical, and then they would evaporate those off. So there's another part to this too. A lot of people, if you're like my wife, uh, you know, it's 85 degrees outside. It's too hot for the bees. You need to do something. Well, here's the thing. The bees are heating their brood nests 94 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit. So the interior climate of the hive is under the control of the bees and what we consider to be a hot day might not be that hot for your bees. So the things that we do control impact your bees. Now, why did I decide no top venting, no upper entrances? And how do we know? Well, first of all, if you ever put out swarm traps, how many of your swarm traps have vents through the top and openings up above? and then also an entrance down below. I'm gonna wager that most of them do not because scout bees that are checking out a cavity that they hope to lead their swarm to, uh, if they find that it has crevices that are too big for them to fill with the propolis that I just showed you on those inner covers, if the crevices are too large or there's venting or the entrance is too large, they're unlikely to move into that space. So here's what we're doing as beekeepers we wait till we have the bees and we have a captive audience and then we alter their climate by controlling the venting through the top and the bottom, whether the bees want it or not. My bees have demonstrated through their use of propolis that they do not want upper vents, period. As long as they have the ability to block it up, they block it up. Um, so here's the other thing. I built uh, feeder shims with integrated inner covers. So the whole shim, the inner cover was all one piece. One of the first things one of my viewers said was, hey, you better put some screen vents in that thing and uh, because they need to be vented through the top. If you're going to put a rapid round over that center hole, you have no airflow through there. So I did that. I cut the two inch diameter holes. I put number eight stainless steel screen in there and then I gave them venting in the back of the hive. And then that of course carries up through that feeder shim and out through the hive cover. What did the bees do with the venting? If you gave them the opportunity, uh, in other words, if you make this configuration change in September or October, the bees don't have the time and heat and resources to propolize everything. So when some people go to these winter configurations, you took the options away from the bees. And that was noted last year when I put together the APAME hives that have venting slats through the feeders on the top. The bees did not have the time to close those up and I was kind of bothered by the fact that the bees had no control and I couldn't even close off those vents. There's vents in the cover, vents in the feeders. This year though, this is the first summer with the Apame hives, the bees have sealed up with propolis all of those slats including the little inserts where they go up through to access feed liquid or solid they're even sealing those little vents. The bees are telling you they want to control that, not you. So the other thing is uh, when I get to talk with people who are experts in cutouts in buildings, 
occupied buildings, sheds, unoccupied buildings, cavities, anywhere that bees are moving in. So I know there are a lot of people that do this and they do massive numbers of them, but I don't have access to these people to talk to them. So the ones that would talk to me are Randy McCaffrey and of course, Jeff Horchoff, which is Mr. Ed, right? And between them, they've done up to 2000 cutouts of structures. So I always wanna know, they just, they just do the cutouts. But what I wanna find out is, where was the opening? How big was the opening? Were there vents? Did the bees, how did they handle the space without our meddling with the space? And in some cases, you should watch their videos, by the way. The size of the colonies of bees, the honey that they've stored, the population of the bees in these cavities is often enormous, right? They've been there several years in some cases. And they'll have the tiniest entrance near the bottom or the bottom third of the cavity that they're in, assuming it doesn't go horizontal. And if it goes horizontal, still the same, a single entrance. And then they have a predictable, um, you know, production here, like it says here, uh, the queen will lay the bottom box exclusively. Did I get that right? Well, it's not just the bottom box. The queen lays oriented by the entrance, wherever the fresh air access is, that's where the bees tend to concentrate their brood. And then as you get farther into a cavity, horizontal, vertical, whatever the configuration is, wherever the venting occurs, you have the potential for your queen to lay eggs there because that's the airflow that they want over their developing brood. And as you get farther away from that, it's predictable. So this falls into line with the questions that I ask people that do ripouts. Where was the honey? Did you ever find after this transition from brood to pollen and brood to nothing but honey, after that, did you ever find a situation where the bees were laying eggs beyond that? So what I called early on the honey bridge. So in other words, once I set up my deep super and all of my brood boxes start with deep frames. Once I have that established and once I see them arc up and they start to fill those boxes, I put another box on until it becomes a box of nothing but honey. Beyond that, this is why I get away with a couple of things. I don't use queen excluders because based on this information, my own observations here in my own apiary and feedback I get from other people, if there's no top vent and no upper entrance, they keep the brood near the entrance. And of course, through winter time, the brood moves up because they're consuming the stores. And then of course, the brood is up high in spring. And that's when some people swap their boxes. I don't do that either. So in spring, if I want them to move down sooner, they'll backfill with honey and they'll start to work their way back down. And I winter with a two box configuration, most common, a single deep, and then a medium. And that medium going into fall is always their honey resource to get them through winter. And then we have emergency resources beyond that. So I insulate the outer cover. I insulate the inner cover. I have no venting and no upper entrance. And keep in mind too, these people that I'm talking to that do these cutouts are doing them in buildings because some people will say, well, those buildings have insulation. You should see them. Sometimes it's nothing but clapboards and then the cavity and then the interior surface can also be a very thin material. A lot of these structures are in profound states of decay. So the bees are propolizing the interior surfaces, which is great for the bees and they're keeping it sealed up so that they maintain that single entrance and that control point.
So I hope that you understand what I'm trying to get to here is that they organize their resources in very predictable ways that we see reinforced over and over and over again. So up here where I live, where it gets colder, and down in the south, even Gulfport, Mississippi area. Um, so if that's consistent throughout these areas, then I am a fan of not venting people that put their nickels up there and shim that. I did that too. I did all of that stuff in the past. Now, I've been keeping bees since 2006. So I just followed suit with everything that I ever saw, and it made sense, and I read a study that showed that they wintered better with venting. Right, and they did, and that was true. But guess what they weren't doing? They weren't insulating the inner cover and the outer cover. So the risk of condensation directly over those bees, directly over that winter cluster, was present in an uninsulated cover. So once I went to insulation, then I could do away with top venting because that condensation was no longer threatening to the bees and instead occupied the corners, the sidewalls, and down below the cluster where that dew point occurred. So I know I really gave a detailed explanation about that, but I really want Peg and others to understand where that thinking comes from and that's proven out through practical demonstration and testing right here in my own yard. And then, of course, is reinforced by everything I'm learning from other people. When I find somebody that seems to be doing a lot of something, their statistics are, are higher. So we can find out if somebody's looked at more than a thousand cutouts, what a great source of information they would be. So moving on to number two, this comes from James. I know the Varroa prefers drones, but do they attack the nurse bees more than the working forager bees? Also... Do the nurse bees feed inside the rapid round feeders, or is that only the workers? Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, I know the Varroa prefer drones. So we're talking about the drone uh, developing pupa state. That's when the Varroa destructor mites get in there because they get two cycles of reproduction because the drones take the longest to pupate, right? So, but once, they're, once they've emerged, and we have some new information, thanks to Zachary Lamas and his research, that young drones, so two to three days old specifically, were kind of drone, were Varroa destructor mite magnets. So the Varroa destructor mite would jump off a nurse bee and run over and get onto the body of that two to three day old drone because the drone was fat with nutrition. And so these little rascals go by smell alone and they're blind, but they move and scoot along pretty fast inside the hive. So they get on the body of that, which means while you have high drone numbers and high drone production in your hives, your drone brood and your new drones that have just emerged are actually attracting more of these. So if we're only counting the nurse bees, which is true, the nurse bees are more appealing to the Varroa destructor mites, first of all, where are the nurse bees? The nurse bees are on the brood and the brood is emerging. So when new brood emerges from their cells, these workers, if they have Varroa destructor mites in there, they come right out. They've already been feeding on that uh, bee that's emerging from her cell. And then they move right onto these soft young bodies of the nurse bees because they're rich with nutrition. But if there are drones present. So this is why this cycle could go through the year and the balance could shift. But if you have a lot of a lot of drones being produced inside your hive, 
then you'll have that area as a magnet for the road destructor mites. And then later when you don't have drones, where do the mites go? And remember, they only want those drones when they're like three days old. So beyond that, where do those drones, they're gonna shed their mites. They don't groom them off themselves. The mites voluntarily leave their bodies and then they go onto your nurse bees and here's the problem. Well, there's lots of problems, but here's one problem to think about, like you needed another problem. Uh, these drones are flying away and going to other hives as young as three days old. So at the very time that these Varroa destructor mites are losing their interest in the drones as their source of nutrition, they'll be jumping off and going onto the body of a nurse bee. And if that drone is flown to another hive, what is feeding the drone when they visit other hives? The nurse bees. So now we have drones in direct contact with nurse bees of another hive being fed through trophallaxis. And what's happening then? That mite leaves the drone and now it's on the body of another bee in another hive. See how hard it is to control burrow destructor mites. So um, they do feed on the nurse bees more than the foragers, and that's because the foragers are working bees and they have less nutrition on them, and that's because they're not nourishing developing larvae where the nurse bees are, and therefore their resources and their kind of vitamin content in their bodies is much higher than the foraging bees. So to do, 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 do the other question was, uh, do nurse bees feed inside the rapid round? So here's the thing. Nurse bees attend to the brood and you'll find them pretty isolated to those frames. So how do they get water? How do they get nourishment? So in other words, where are they getting their nectar? So we have bees that I call them storekeeper bees. So when bees are flying in from the outside and uh, they've collected nectar from flowers and resources like that, when they're going in, they don't go and deliver that nectar directly to the honey stores, the honey cells, right? Um, the bees that are inside the house bees take that from them and they transfer that to one another. And then of course, they're also putting a lot of those resources right near the brood. So they're filling those cells first that are just in the outer ring of the brood and they're passing it off. So those nurse bees get that nourishment right there and they help do those transfers themselves. So those that would go up to the top and feed, it's basically acting like an interior forager. It doesn't mean a nurse bee couldn't be fed sugar syrup. It just means that based on their duties when the hive is healthy and everything is thriving and we're mid-stride here as far as summer goes and everything, it's those foragers that are inside the hive that are also up in there getting your uh, rapid round resources and then they transfer that through trophallaxis throughout the other bees in the hive right down to the nurse bees too. So nurse bees can take it from those foragers before they ever get up there to transfer to the storekeeper bees. Uh, and when it comes to pollen, pollen goes directly from the field to the cells and then the nurse bees and other bees that are inside the hive work that up into bee bread. So, oh, and the other thing it says here is I've never seen a mite and I know that's not an accurate test um, I visually inspect for mites on the bees inside my rapid round clear covers. So visualizing a mite, this is a rapid round, by the way, we're talking about. You have a clear outer cover. We have this cover that stays on when there's liquid syrup in here, right? 
So if you're looking through here and hoping to see mites on your bees, the most likely place that the Varroa destructor mites will be on the body of those bees is going to be the abdomen. So they're going to be hidden away. When the bee is normally walking over the comb and, or landing on a landing board and scooting in, if you see Varroa destructor mites on the back of the bee, on the thorax, if you Google Varroa destructor mites on bees, most of the pictures are going to be of the Varroa destructor mites on the thorax and other conspicuous locations on the bees. If you're seeing that, you have an infestation. You have a problem. Don't try counting your mites and everything. It's time to uh, come up with a treatment or control regimen for those bees right away because they're already all over your workers. Now, the normal place to find them is in the abdomen between the plates of their abdomen. So you'll see the little kind of a crescent moon of the back part of their body and they'll be kind of on this angle and look at the shape of a varroa destructor mite. Their bodies are curved and it matches the contour of the abdomen of the bee. So they scoot under. So what you would see is this through the, the plates in the bee's abdomen. So you see these little edges. Now I've looked carefully and I've never seen a mite able to scoot completely under. They're always revealed a little bit like that. So that's what you're looking for when you're looking at the abdomens of mites. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in today's discussion. But just looking at them, going to the drinker is not an effective way to find out whether you have mites or not. Although if you see mites on top of your bees, you're in a pickle. Let's move on to question number three, which comes from Michael. Okay, I bought a quarter pound bag of seeds from Eden Brothers pre-spring but I never got them planted and will they be fine for next spring? So this is something too that people have asked me about because I grew a bunch of hyssop seeds inside during the winter time. So it's a lot of fun to do. And by the way, I transplanted them all outside and they're doing fantastic. So what I want you to do is if you've got these seeds and we've got seeds, my wife was asking me if, you know, she likes to save everything and won't throw anything away. So she's planting seeds and in some cases are two years old. So how do you know if it's still good? Well, I'm going to tell you. Here's a sandwich bag. This sandwich bag has a paper towel in it and the paper towel I have folded over. So it's a double thick paper towel and then I dampen it. So it's not dripping, but it's almost dripping. It's that moist. And then if you look at the front of it, I have seeds spread out all over the paper towel and don't put them right next to each other, but you spread them out. What's the purpose of that? I mean, I'm not going to grow them from this, although I did do those experiments and started them until their um, little roots started to come out. This is a germination test. So, and this works on all seed types I've found. The Ziploc baggie keeps the paper towel moist so it doesn't dry out. And you'll find out by putting this because hyssop seeds, for example, need daylight to germinate. So I put these on the windowsill or somewhere where they'll get a half a day of light. But within just a few days, you'll see the seeds start to sprout roots. And when they do that, you'll know the percentage of germination, right? So then you can look at them and you see if they're all viable, then you know that they're still good to go. And if you just bought these, these were purchased from Eden Brothers. Just to show you, this is, this is what a quarter pound of hyssop seed looks like. Now I've, I've already planted a bunch of them, but this is probably more seeds than most of you will ever need. But these are packed for 2023. Seeds always say what year they're good for. But uh, if you store these in a cool, dry place, and uh, some require stratification, 
What does that mean? Well, they require a frozen cycle or a cool down cycle before the seeds are ready to be planted outside. And most people recommend direct sowing of these seeds, but just putting them on a damp paper towel, uh, you will know if uh, they begin to germinate uh, that the seeds are viable. And then of course you're not wasting your time planting a plot and then nothing is happening. So that's how I find out. And I found that seeds that are, you know, several years old, sometimes make it fresher is always better if you use them on the year that they were of course uh, picked for uh, then you'll be good to go but that's how I do it and uh, last winter that's how I started them and then I took the ones out that had the roots on them and then I transferred them all into tiny pots and then grew them from there totally unnecessary I would not start them out again for growing in a ziploc baggie I would just direct sow into little pots with uh, potting soil and then I covered them with saran wrap to hold the moisture in and then they germinated on their own so pretty cool easy to do highly recommend it and the hyssop is doing fantastic it's already blooming and here's the cool thing about hyssop it will grow and provide for your bees and flower and these are new plants so all of my hyssop plants out in the field are less than a year old so but they're all blooming and they'll continue to bloom right into the first frost at the end of the year so fantastic bee plants question number four comes from jane mondovi wisconsin a new beekeeper bought a varroa easy check and in the directions it talks about co2 mite check have you used this method and did it work and doesn't it kill the bees? Okay. So here's the thing. I like to do lots of stuff. And this, this annoys some people, let's be honest, that I fool around a lot. Some of the things don't seem practical. Um, I do like, I just did a video demonstrating the sugar shake. And some people were shocked by how hard you have to shake the bees in the sugar shake to get the varroa mites out. So I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about several different uh, methods for counting your varroa destructor mites. Uh, one of the things that we're, we're all looking for, if we can count mites without killing our bees, how good is that? So, but what, let's look at the big picture, you know, and, and Randy Oliver says this really well too, and he was one of the instructors at Cornell. Um, the thing is, uh, you are heading off disease for your bees. So if you end up losing some of the bees that you're using to count in the face of losing a colony of bees through winter or building up to winter due to varroa destructor mites, these losses are considered pretty acceptable. But for a lot of people that still doesn't sit well. In other words, they don't want to use the alcohol wash. Uh, I've abandoned the alcohol wash. If I needed something immediate, I use this Dawn Ultra Free and Clear. Or this is Dawn Ultra Pure Essentials. Why do I use that? Because it's biodegradable and I try to keep bad chemicals out of my yard as much as possible. And that had better releasing properties than using isopropanol. So, but then you're killing your bees. So if you're doing 300, you're doing a three, 300 scoop of uh, bees. So that's half a cup. And uh, those are your nurse bees. So those are your best bees. And everybody wants to be nice to their nurse bees. So we look for other methods. And the sugar shake, 
if you just roll it, because I've seen people try to demonstrate it that way. You put the sugar in there, you roll the bees, you give them a little agitation, then you shake them like a little salt shaker. And uh, what you'll find out there though is those bees can have mites on them. And even though you follow the protocol completely, the two minute dwell time and everything else so the bees can heat up, they can groom, and you do your shaking cycle, um, the varroa mites do not release right away. And what we've done with the powdered sugar is it helps the bees start to groom and they naturally start to groom because they don't want powdered sugar all over them. But what happens is the varroa destructor mites uh, don't hold on very well with just their mouth parts. So if you've ever been fed on by a tick before, and I haven't, thank goodness, but a tick on a dog, when you go to pull it off, its mouth parts are really embedded. They're really strong and they really hold on. Well, uh, thanks to Dr. Samuel Ramsey, and I'm sure others who studied the varroa destructor mite, we found out that their mouth parts don't hold on very well. So even while the varroa destructor mite, which has an appearance much like a tick, uh, while they're feeding, they're actually holding on with their feet. And if you can disrupt that contact with their feet, the little pads on their feet, if you can use the powdered sugar and get that up under those varroa destructor mites, they lose their footing. And that partnered with shocks, you know, real agitation, that's when they fall out and come off of the body of the bee. If you don't provide enough agitation, they don't come off. So, and I'll get to my point and we'll talk about CO2, but I want to explain the sugar shake and how if you're just doing it very gently, you are not going to get the mites off your bees and you might think they're clear when they're not. And I'll tell you how to determine that. So, and this is why I came up with how much I shake the bees, how long and how hard you shake the bees to get the mites off. And then this of course ties in now with Dr. Robin Underwood, who we spoke about, who said, uh, when you're doing sugar shakes, those bees aren't living as long as you think afterwards. So that leads us to another quandary. If you're doing the sugar shake, sugar roll, which is called by a lot of people, um, the bees may still be dying off some right away and some within just a period of days after you've done it. So we need to know more about whether those survive and how hard you have to shake them. And then let's find out because we have to have a scientific base for this, right? So if you've done your sugar shake, you've already got your bees. This is one container that I'll talk about, but it's not the one I do for sugar shake. But uh, when you do the sugar shake, I got recently, I got one mite off of it and I know that I shake them really well. So, but to the point where some observers were saying, well, then you've, you've probably killed those bees anyway. And I can't believe you didn't just toss them after that. Well, here's the thing. Find out how effective your sugar shake was. Develop your method. Develop the consistency of your method and find out if it works. And the way you can find that out, you've got those bees already. They're in the container. Now it's time to put your Dawn dish soap mixed with water uh, to release any remaining mites. Is that going to kill your bees? It is. It's 100% going to kill the bees. Isopropanol, 100% going to kill the bees. But what you'll find out is if more mites release from those bees, the same bees that you just did your sugar shake on, then your sugar shake was inadequate. So, and what I've always said in the past is you're not needing scientific data. You don't need that level of accuracy. What you're trying to find out is do my bees have mites? 
Do they not have mites? How infested are they, right? So if you do a sugar shake, even a gentle one or whatever, and if you end up with six or seven mites out of that, you already have a problem. There's no reason to kill those bees. You already have a problem. You've got six or seven mites, and uh, so you're going to have to treat the colony, especially this time of year. If those numbers occur this time of year, they're only going to double every month, roughly, between now and the end of the year. So you're going to have to do something to mitigate, to control the mites. So the sugar shake may or may not uh, reduce the life of your bees. And in some cases, if you really hammer it, then of course you dump out a bunch of dead bees right away. But I watched the bees shake off the sugar. I watched them getting licked by the other bees in their um, colony. And then uh, they move on. So they're capable of moving on. Now, there could be sublethal injury, you know, that reduces your bees' effectiveness. But it's kind of a feel-good thing. Now, let's jump fast forward to the CO2. This is the CO2. By the way, there's a, there's a CO2 system that they sell online that you really don't need. This is the EasyCheck, Varroa EasyCheck. These jars are available. I just marked this for CO2. And I marked the top for CO2. And look, I even put an arrow on there because I teach people about stuff. So I want everything to be clearly marked. So what's the CO2 like? First of all, it comes in these 16 gram containers. So the other thing is you might be thinking about what's the expense of it. Well, for the backyard beekeeper, it's not that expensive because I buy these containers. I think there's 10 in a pack which uh, comes down to $1.69 per canister, per 16 gram canister. And then I can get six or seven uh, CO2 knockouts out of this. So it's the same thing as before. You're gonna put, now with the CO2 method, they drop it to 200 bees. I don't know why, but uh, you know we're set up when we're doing Varroa mite counts to 300 bees, which is half a cup. So if you go to 200 bees, it's less. But I'm going to say something now that's going to annoy a lot of people. So the CO2 uh, method, once they're in there and they're knocked out. And by the way, that happens right away. When you put CO2 is uh, something that settles low. So it'll displace the air. So when you put this in here and you open this up, you open it gently and let that run in there for six to 10 seconds. You'll watch the bees, they, if they're all fluttering around in here, they drop to the bottom right away. Okay, so they're out. Now, if you continue to flood that with CO2 past those 10 seconds, you can kill them. So you wanna follow those instructions and you'll find your parameters. The longer you expose these bees to CO2, and also it's so loose when it goes through the needle is, when it goes through the hole in the top, that the air that's in here is blowing out the top and in some cases around these edges as well. So the CO2 settles and unless you had fans blowing in there, you're not gonna be giving them fresh air for now. So here's what I recommend uh, because then you have to shake them and agitate them. If you're doing this with your bees, right? You're still jamming them up and hammering them around in there. And then you're counting on these Varroa destructor mites to come through these openings and settle here in the bottom. I'm gonna suggest something, and there are, those procedures are well known and you can try it, but it's been proven not to be very effective, especially if you follow their instructions to the letter, you're gonna find out you're not really gonna get a good read on how many Varroa destructor mites are in here. But the good news is the bees will of course recover. And then depending on how much you did this, right? 
you could be messing them up just the same as you did when you've got the sugar shake going on. So is there another option? Yes, there is. And this is the part that's going to bother people because, you know, if you're a sideliner, commercial beekeeper, you won't have the time to do what I'm about to suggest. So let's go back to our friend, the Varroa Destructor Mite. Where is this mite going to be on the body of the bee? What do we have to do? We're trying to get them off. So we're shaking them off. And with CO2, we've knocked out the bee and the mite. So they're both taken asleep, right? They're snoozing. And then we want them to get off. So we want to knock them off of the bee. But here's what I'm going to suggest to you. For those with time on their hands and those who really enjoy science and really want to see things up close. And here's what I like. I like to catch these mites alive and I want to see them clamoring around. I don't know why. I just do. So collect your 200 bees in this, in this container. And it can be any container. doesn't even have to be this one because what I'm about to tell you to do is a lot of fun. You take them alive and you bring them home. And hopefully because you're a backyard beekeeper. Where's home? Home is 80 feet that way. So you get them in your jar, you take them in, and you set up on your kitchen table. That's what I recommend. That's my wife's favorite place for me to set up to do mite counts and things like that. So now that they're here and they're alive, they're not knocked out yet, I set up my stereo microscope. Now, that's more, that's overkill. You might not need it. And I also have these empty pretzel containers, you know, the big long pretzels that are clear, that container. I lay that sideways on the table with the closed end facing the window. Any bees I put in it will not come out even though the lid's off, they naturally head for the window and then they'll just be bumping up against the side. So this is my setup and I probably need to make a video of this because it is fun to do. And you can just have a big magnifying glass. So you can have a 3x or a 5x magnifying glass or just get the really strong reading glasses. They're like $3 each at your local drugstore and you set up your little area with your white piece of paper and everything. And if you need tweezers, but you can just use your fingers. So here's what you do. Now you hit them with your 10 seconds of CO2 and down they go. And keep them in here, but you can take the lid off. And then you're going to dump out the bees and you're going to use your tweezers. And you're going to pick these bees up by the wings one by one. And you're going to turn them upside down and you can look for mites on them. So you're looking for mites on 200 bees. So how efficient you are at that. But let me tell you this. If you can pick up the bee and turn it around with those magnification, 3x to 5x, you're going to see immediately if that bee has a mite on it. And then where are you putting this bee? You looked at it. You put that bee in your pretzel container. Then you get another bee and you look at that one and you roll it over and you look for mites and you put that in the container and you go through. You can visually look at every bee. What did you just avoid? The agitation. Unless you're calling them names, they're not agitated. So you're picking up each bee one after the other, and then you find one that's got a mite on it. That goes in another jar, put the lid on it. And then you keep going. That is 100% effective in determining how many mites are in your 200 bees. So you can, and they're nurse bees. So now those that are in this container over here, they get delivered right back to your hive, not shaken, not stirred, they were only knocked out for a little while, and then now they're up and around again. Now, how long does it take them to come around? How long do you have to go through that? You've got about 15 to 20 minutes to go through 200 bees. And you can do it. It's doable. I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. For those of you who are, you know, trying to account for your time and 
trying to limit the time in the bee yard, you're never going to do that because you just want to get through it. You want to know if that colony needs to be treated or not, and you want to move on. I want to see stuff, and I think it's fun. So that's my method. Knock them out. Well, bring them in, knock them out, look at them under magnification, and see those mites. Now, the bees that have the mites on them, now what do you do? You have to shake them. But we're only shaking five or six of them instead of 200. It's a, it's a win. And you can take pictures with your phone and tell all your friends that you're doing science, and it will be a lot of fun. So, that's it. Yes, you can do them. Question number five comes from Hunt Lady. And this is, this is an important area too, uh, for those of you who have visitors and things like that, and we're thinking about bee sting therapy, right? So Hunt Lady writes, I recently had a bee call to a man who had been in pest control for years. On this day, he was stung and had an anaphylactic reaction. He wanted to know if he would be allergic to bees from now on. My second husband was a master beekeeper for over 35 years, and one morning he stepped out on his back porch drinking a cup of coffee and was stung on the lip. He went into anaphylactic shock, but managed to hit himself with a Napa pen. We both carry them as part of our public service. So in other words, they're responders, which is why he had an EpiPen with him. Because that was kind of my first question. If you weren't allergic, why would you have an EpiPen? But if you're an emergency responder, EMS, or something like that, you might have those with you. And he called 911 before he passed out. And after that, he could no longer keep bees. So that's a master beekeeper with over 30 years of experience, unable to keep bees anymore. He was stung once more in his life, but the EpiPen shot stopped the reaction from becoming life-threatening. So the reason that uh, she sent me this email is because it's a large topic, but the fad of so-called apotherapy and the casual ways in which it is conducted is concerning. Best regards from Carlsbad, New Mexico, and they're having temps over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So anyway, this is an area that we need to talk about, but as an educator, if I'm teaching people about bees, I'm very careful when it crosses into areas of health and well-being. Um, because I err on the side of uh, failing safe, as I often say. So I want people not to be stung. So I don't ever encourage people to go out and just get yourself a, a bunch of stings and, and it's good for you kind of thing. And when that goes into epitherapy, and for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, epitherapy involves anything that comes from bees. So we most frequently hear of people uh, getting an apotherapy kit or something like that, you can get them right through the mail. A lot of people sell them. What is it? It's a package of worker bees, and you're supposed to sting yourself with them. So, and I'm just going to give you a, a brief paragraph on this. It says, apotherapy or the use of honeybee products for medical purposes is generally considered safe when practiced by a qualified healthcare professional. However, there are some risks associated with apotherapy, such as allergic reactions, infection, and anaphylaxis, which was described in the question. So all I want to do is get you to the point where, if you're thinking about apotherapy for yourself, you take the risk for that. But I would be very careful about suggesting it to other people unless this is your, your vocation. If this is your area and you know a lot about it, you understand the risks and things like that, and you're you're a therapist of some kind, a certified therapist, then uh, you're probably okay. So a lot of you viewing this may wonder, 
how would you know if somebody's certified, somebody's trying to give me a bunch of stings to take care of whatever ailment that I have or using something else that comes from bees to treat me for an ailment. Well, there is the American Apotherapy Society and they have a website and I checked it out and I really actually liked everything, everything that I saw there. So they have medical doctors on their, uh, on their board and the people that are talking about apotherapy, how it can be used. So these are practitioners and medical doctors who have a lot of experience, who understand these interactions with your body. I think that's very important. And that's also why, well, I don't, I don't go out of my way to get stung anyway. So I know a lot of people think that that's a rite of passage, but uh, I like bee suits. I like to wear gloves when it's appropriate. And of course, uh, a veil when you walk around out there. Getting stung uh, is not the end of the world, but it doesn't mean you want one. So I think the concern here is, and I think it's a, a valid point, that uh, we need to be careful about telling people to sting themselves. It can go bad. Uh, this, you know, it's part of my life too, that my grandmother up in Vermont, in Chester, Vermont, was a beekeeper. And uh, my grandfather, who's a minister in that town, um, he was stung by bees because he was around my grandmother and she was keeping bees. And eventually, instead of developing a tolerance to the bee stings, he went the other way. Uh, much like we have a case here where a, a master beekeeper with over 35 years experience gets stung one day and all of a sudden it goes bad. I'm sure that's rare. But for my grandfather, when he got stung and he had a reaction, he had to go to the physician who said she can't keep bees anymore because stings like that could kill you. Now, back then they didn't have EpiPens. So, but I wouldn't personally, when somebody tells me they're allergic and they want to keep bees, I ask about the level of response that their body has. If it involves their respiratory system and they're in uh, danger and they need an EpiPen just to survive the event, I would not be keeping bees at all, period. And if I developed a sensitivity on that level, I would get rid of all my bees. I would stop keeping bees. It's not worth it to risk human life and health. That's just my opinion. Question number six, it comes from Rob, Southern New Hampshire. It says, I'm just getting back about my packaged bees with deformed wing virus. And like you suggested, the bees with deformed wings completely disappeared as the old packaged bees got replaced by the newly hatched bees. I haven't seen a bee with deformed wing virus in weeks, so you are correct. Thank you. I like that story. And uh, although the bees are healthier, there have been a couple more issues. I found a larva on the landing board, and I checked back a bit later, and there were two dead varroa mites next to it. It makes me think that maybe the queen has some VSH traits. VSH, for those of you who don't know, is varroa-sensitive hygienic. Maybe the bees pulled the larvae and cleaned the cell. This was before all the package bees had been replaced by the new bees. So um, uh, it's true that some of these sensitive and hygienic bees, they'll sense that there's a varroa in a cell and sometimes they'll just uncap the pupa cell and then they'll let air go in there because that's detrimental to the varroa mites and their reproduction. So they'll also detect and smell when varroa mites are present in those developing pupa and they'll pull them out and they'll drag them out and get rid of them. So the good news is they're trying to take care of it. And so that's a good uh, time and opportunity to do a mite count because you want to know what the loads are. Even if you're treatment free, should you be counting mites? And I say yes. Why? 
because you need to know which of your colonies are managing their mite loads and which of your colonies are not. In fact, some of these hygienic bees, and I've had them for years, um, they'll get so ADHD about going after those mites that they'll reduce the brood. In other words, they'll fight the mites so fervently that they'll even drag out and kill and get rid of uh, developing bees in the colony to where it impacts their reproduction. So sometimes they can overdo it, uncapping and things like that. But uh, you do the mite counts because you want to know if they're getting them under control. If they are, you've got your reproductive stock to continue working your way towards colonies that won't require treatment. But hopefully you're still doing interventions and integrated pest management, screen bottom boards if you can get them and things like that that are enclosed is my recommendation because you have passive control over mites. But uh, that was very interesting and I'm glad that uh, that was shared. If you want to see what your bees are doing, because you won't notice this often. Uh, also, you sometimes don't notice when Varroa's tractor mites fall into a tray uh, or sheets that you can pull out from under your hive because there are also little tiny bugs in there that will drag away and eat those Varroa destructor mites. And so if you're not checking very often and the tray doesn't have something in it that contains them, I don't recommend putting water in those trays because now you've added humidity to a hive that may be trying to dehumidify honey, but you can put things like mineral oil. And if it's a sheet that you slide in, you can spray it with Pam cooking spray. That holds those little mites right where they land. And you need to do that fairly often as far as pulling them out and inspecting because guess what else? You're going to have bits of pollen and propolis and everything else that's inside the hive falling through the screen and cluttering it all up. So once a week would probably be a good um, routine for pulling those out and looking at them. So, yeah. Next question, number seven, comes from Bonnie, Scottville, Michigan. We're in the process of building a long Langstroth hive using your plans. General set of plans and very sturdy. I'm sure it will last my lifetime. Thinking ahead to making legs and wondering if the hive should be level or have a slight tilt as common with long laying hives. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, for those of you who are wondering too, because I do get this question from time to time, how do I find the plans and the prints that you offer us for free? They're on the website, thewaytobe.org, and it says prints for you is what it says on the page so you can access those you can build the the hives it also shows my configurations for those of you who are curious and you make your own modifications so uh here's the thing when it comes to the legs and setting it up when it comes to tilting your hive stand so a lot of you are setting up your beehives for the first time you just got into beekeeping so the general practice is to tilt your hives towards the landing board and that's because you have a bottom board that has an insert that's an entrance reducer on it. And by tilting it towards the landing board, when we get rainstorms and things like that, the water doesn't go and progress inside the hive. Instead, it's shed to the outside. And we further protect the landing board here by putting hive visors on. And there are YouTube videos about that. I show you how to build them, how to make your own, the stock you need, the hardware you need, and everything. And when you put those on, they shelter your landing board also, so heavy rains don't go right inside. Plus, on these super hot days, it drops the temperature an average of 15 degrees on the landing board and the front of your hive midday. So that's very beneficial. 
Um, so the thing is with the long Langstroth hive, like mine, uh, it's a gabled roof. So the gabled roof sheds water both ways and there's no landing board. So there's no need to tip it. So what is important with your hives? And this is Langstroth or the long Lang or any horizontal hive configuration. If the top is flat, you might want to tip it a little bit because you want to shed the water off to the sides or you want snow to melt and drip one specific direction, usually to the southern side or southeastern side if you're in the northern hemisphere. And then uh, with the gabled roofs, you want everything level. And the reason for that is sometimes you're using foundationless frames and you want the bees to build their comb. They build it with gravity. So if you have foundationless, you can end up with wonky comb if you've got this drunken looking beehive out in your yard. So it could be perfectly level. But what I do want to mention is I really don't like these hives are very heavy, but I don't like the stability of legs are straight up and down because we're going to be working the hive. Some people lean on the hive. Some people might bump it with their tractor or something. I don't know what you do, but I would recommend there's nothing against building your own legs for your hives, but I would much rather see them camphor out at an angle away from the hive so they provide more stability because these hives are heavy but uh, we could still get heavy storms and things like that and it just looks top heavy when the legs are going straight down now one of the fixes for that if you look at my videos about my long length roth hives i've actually driven so uh hardware into the ground so i have different types i have pipe that's been driven into the ground because when we're supporting something by a vertical pipe it's either through soil friction, so the deeper you go, the sidewalls of the pipe or the angle iron that you're using are held by the friction of the soil, and the other is compression load. So as you drive it down more, you can put gravel down there, and then of course, if you're drilling a hole or something like that, the compression load is supported by soil density too. So the other thing is, if you don't wanna build your stand like that, those are my favorites because they'll never go anywhere, and you're gonna be strapping your hive to them. So, Another hive stand that is fantastic as far as strength, supporting capability, and adapting to uneven ground. I started using these a few years back, and now I have a lot of them out in my bee yard. And they are the Lysen hive stands, and they're built for the Lysen hives, which are polystyrene hives, but it will hold like six of them. So these hive stands are overkill because they have a capacity of 1,100 pounds and that's 550 per set, and then you will put them together, you have a pair of 1,100 pounds. So you can more than support a long Langstroth hive that's built as heavy as you want it to be, and that's what I really like about the long Langstroth hive, but there's nothing stopping you from building your own Langstroth hives also. It's just that when you're lifting things and you're lifting boxes, people already complain about the eight frame deeps and 10 frame deeps and lifting them up when they're full of honey, See, the beauty of the horizontal hive is, and it's a Langstroth, it takes all the Langstroth frames, and we don't care how heavy it gets. So you can build the sidewalls of that beehive as thick as you want them to be, because it's never going to go anywhere. We're not migratory beekeepers, we're backyard beekeepers. They become a fixture of your landscape. So like the Lyson hive stands, they're galvanized steel, they're heavy duty, I think they're fantastic and if I need to put together, as I did this past week, emergency hive stands and things like that, I have two stands I go to. If it's on level ground and I'm just putting up a nuke or something like that, I use the Be Smart Designs plastic hive stand. 
And the reason is it's lightweight, it's a grab and go. And guess what else I like to use the Be Smart Designs Hive Stands for? I sit on them. Because you actually, part of the structure of the stand is that you put a wooden bottom board on it and then you drive screws into the wooden bottom board through the sidewalls of the hive stand. They're lightweight and they have a lot of practical use. So one is to sit out there, sit on them and drink your coffee. Oh, let's go look at that hive over there. You pick up your hive stand, you go and you sit it over there. And it's a piece of equipment that stays out in your bee yard. Hey, let's do an inspection of this hive over here. So we grab this B-Smart lightweight hive stand and we put it over next to that and guess where we're putting our boxes and our lid and stuff like that while we're inspecting the hive, right on that hive stand, lightweight, carry it around. And I'm saying that because this is a practical thing to have in your bee yard and I'm gonna tie it in with something else. Um, you can put your hive butler on that, uh, the tote or any kind of tote that you use on that stand and then of course, um, put your stuff on while you're doing inspections. And it's a place you pull your frame out, your brood frame, instead of hanging it off the side of your beehive where it's exposed and bees can fall off. Or if your queen's on there, you put it in a hive butler tote or some other kind of tote and it's sheltered and anything comes off of that frame, they're in that bin so you can see what's going on. So they have utility. But when it comes to these license stands, they're heavy and they can handle you know, multiple hives I like to put one hive on them and then I leave a lot of space next to it. Now what do I have? I've got a license stand with a six foot span from two by fours. They're built to accommodate standard two by fours. A six foot span is more than enough. And now when I'm inspecting that hive, where's everything being set? On the extension of the two by fours that are part of this hive stand and you set everything right there. Nothing goes on the ground. You need to weed whack or mow around an area they're well up off the ground you got little dips or an odd you know slant or slope to your terrain and now you want to move your hive to another location you just pick it up and move it it's got a little off each of the legs adjust individually and so it accommodates a lot i know i'm on my soapbox about that but uh the horizontal hives can be absolutely level in every direction. That benefits you, the bees, everything. And uh, the hive stands that I recommend are the Lyson hive stands, and you can get them a lot of different places. By the way, I went to the Lyson website. They're over $300 for the set. If you go to Better Bee right now, of course, I don't know when you're watching this or listening, but they're $124.95 per set from Better Bee. And then, of course, you're going to pay shipping. But uh, tell them that I sent you if you get those stands from Better Bee so that you can pay the same as everybody else. So question number eight comes from Brad. Hi, Fred. I have an observation hive. Thanks to your videos. And I have a question about pollen storage. I noticed they store dry pollen and wet pollen. I know the wet pollen, bee bread, has a limited shelf life. But does the dry pollen have a much longer or indefinite shelf life? Thanks. Okay, so here's the thing for Brad. The dry pollen that I see in the cells, just the nurse bees haven't gotten to it yet. So, because remember what I mentioned earlier is that the foraging bees that come back with the pollen on their hind legs, they go right in, they do a waggle dance, of course, first at the dance floor to let everybody know where this pollen came from so they can all taste it. They'll put their tongues out and you'll see them tasting it and finding out if it's something that they want. And then that bee will go off and scratch it off of its hind legs right into the cells. And so you'll see little dry balls of pollen, the way it comes right off of the bee, just sitting in the cells. 
And that's just a matter of time before those nurse bees get to that and they'll start working it up. It's already got some nectar in it because when the bees are going out to collect the pollen, they use the nectar that they're carrying in their honey crop that'll come out on their tongue and then they'll run, you'll see them running their forelimbs down the length of their tongue and then they're grooming it. That's how they're sticking all the pollen together so it stays on the bee so they can bring it back. So this processing has actually already begun. And then what happens is inside the hive, the nurse bees that are attending to that, they work it up even more and then they'll pack it in more and then they'll contribute sometimes honey, nectar, and then even they'll, if it's something they don't like, they'll even seal it off with wax, just like they would uh, finished honey. So they can actually mummify the, um, the pollen that's in there if they don't want to deal with it. And sometimes that's because it carries a pesticide load. But so it's just a matter of it hasn't been worked yet. Now here's another thing. If you're seeing that there's a lot of pollen being brought in and none of it is being processed, in other words, the bees aren't working and you know there's brood and that they need it, you should also be looking at your open larvae and see if they're sitting in little pools of food and resources because as soon as they've hatched from that egg, uh, the nurse bee should be in there just filling it with food. So every cell that's got a larva in it should be wet and should be well nourished. And then that lets you know that they have the resources that they need. On the flip side of that, if you see dry pollen and you see that they are having larvae that are in their cells and that they're, they're not swimming in nutrition, then you may have a problem with uh, carbohydrates in the hive. So you may have a lack of nectar. So these are just other things to kind of pay attention to. But in the observation hives, it's very easy to see. That's why I like the observation hives. We can see if, it's, if the cells are shiny and there's nectar and things are being stored in there. But if everything is dry and there's low nutrition in those cells with the larvae, it's, uh, but there's plenty of pollen in there, I would consider, especially with an observation hive, I would put the jar of sugar syrup on there and... Uh, see if that isn't what their problem is. So, but eventually, and as far as dry pollen, none of it really is dry, um, but having a longer shelf life, the fresh pollen is always the best. And the older it is, the more it's likely to be ignored by the bees. So, and ultimately, hopefully they clean it out. But here's what happens sometimes with pollen is if, as I said, there's something about the pollen that's off-putting to the bees or they detect that it's threatening to the colony, and has pesticide in it, they'll seal it up and it'll stay there and they'll never clean it out. It just gets darker and older. And this is where we get into why we should be rotating out brood frames every fifth year in general. Question number nine, Joseph Alvarez. I have a question, I'm in Houston. Do they swarm to trees or hang from the exterior of a house, and a lot of times do they make comb, and if no one messes with them, would they stay there? Why is that? So we're talking about bees that swarm, and sometimes you'll come across uh, a swarm of bees that just stays. Now around here, this year, uh, where I live, they are taken off. In fact, they're not even sticking around for an hour in some cases, which is amazing to me. They're finding places to go. Maybe somebody's got swarm traps around here. I don't know what's going on but they're not bivouacking for very long. So the other thing is, even here in the Northeastern United States, um, sometimes bees don't find a home. 
And uh, there were bees in my bee yard on a maple tree that stayed, a tiny cluster, not interested in them. But you know what they did? They left little bits of beeswax all over that branch. So you could see it nice and white, brand new beeswax. So when bees leave the hive, they're primed to build comb. So when they fly out, uh, and if they stay somewhere for a long time, they'll actually start building comb wherever they happen to be. And so one of our members of our beekeeping organization here, um, at the end of the year, when the fall leaves fell off of trees and bushes and things like that, there was a, a huge uh, series of comb, right? So the bees had been there all summer long unobserved because of the foliage and everything. And so they built out nice paddles of beeswax. And then, of course, when the temperatures stopped, drop, started dropping into the freezing temps at night, um, they just died out because they couldn't handle the cold. They're not sheltered. So in other words, what they're letting you know when they start building comb on their tree branches is not that they found a great spot to be, but that they could find no place to live. So those bees need to be rescued. They will not survive exposed. Now that I've said that, what kind of bees are most likely to build their comb exposed with no protective shelter? Africanized bees, Apis mellifera scutellata. So here's the thing, where they come from, they often build their nests in the open, just a bunch of frames, I mean, just a bunch of comb beeswax and nothing else. And this is why they're such hostile bees. Nothing is gonna mess with that exposed honeycomb, brood and pupa, everything else that's there. Because these bees are gonna full on defend everything that's there. But another thing that those bees have a habit of doing, building a nest, reproducing, building their numbers, and absconding, flying away and completely starting a new colony somewhere else, or frequently swarming and leaving behind a new queen and regenerating as they go. So that kind of bee and those genetics tend to do that where they've come from. Sometimes that could be part of why they do that here, but you would know right away if you had hybridized Africanized bees building comb like that, they would be in your face the minute you were anywhere near them. But uh, yeah, they just can't find a place to go. So hive those things up. And now question number 10, last question of the day comes from Jane. I have a question, why the intermediary step of a bivouac? I wonder why the scouts don't identify and share the location of the new location prior to departure from the existing one. The bees are preparing to leave before they actually do swarm. I wonder why doesn't that trigger the scouts to find the new location, have it accepted, and lead them directly there. Okay, so there's a lot of interesting stuff here. And it's true that uh, we know that when, when you put out swarm traps and things like that, that scouts are visiting, that scouts are going out and they are checking it out even before they leave the hive. There are a lot of advantages to the bees parking intermediate to their final destination. And I'm gonna talk about that. So as far as why there's that intermediate, why they don't just fly and, and aren't really efficient and zip out and go straight to their final destination. Well, part of that is because if they flew immediately to another location, the bees may not be able to get out of the hive fast enough. So in other words, at what point when they start streaming out of there, and we also know that they're streaming out for quite a while, for those of us who stare at that kind of thing at length, like I do, 
we know that they're streaming out for a long period of time. And in one case, they were continually streaming out for 15 minutes. Now the bees that are flying out, let's say it's a windy day, and uh, they would head out and they'd go to their final destination directly. How many of the bees would be able to keep up and stay in line and how cohesive would the group be? It probably wouldn't be very cohesive. They don't know where they're going. Every bee that's in the hive has not been outside. That's interesting too, because we do find those really fuzzy nurse bees with these swarms that go out. They totally depend on the other bees and the pheromone that's with them to keep them all together so they don't get stragglers lost and things like that. So there's another end to it too that I notice. When they fly out of the hive and they bivouac, so when you've got them, it's usually within 100 feet of the hive that they came out of, if there's something to hang on. And uh, when they're doing that, they kind of split midair too. Like with all this activity going on, here's what happens, politics kick in. So I don't want to again say the honeybee democracy, but it is the honeybee democracy. And the bees that are on the landing board, you'll see a bunch of them rev up and start spreading their pheromone from the Nasanoff glands, right? So when they do that, they're kind of recalling a bunch of the bees that have just flown out. So now we have a push me, pull me thing going on. So we have bees collecting on the bivouac location, and then we have bees changing their mind and going back to the hive that they came from. So because you see that, you'll see the split off. Now, the ones that are in the tree or on the side of the house or wherever they are, they're collecting and they're, they're solidifying and they're, they're getting their group together. There's another benefit to that. Number one, the bees that decide to go back, these half-hearted bees that aren't committed to the new location, they quit and they go back. But here's the other thing, they can gain weight. Because bees that are flying around that hit that pheromone, they discover that these, these people are going places, something's happening, I don't like the nuke that I'm living in, and they join up. So you get random foraging bees from other colonies all of a sudden, even with pollen on their hind legs joining up with this cluster of bivouac bees that they're not even related to. And they'll just join them and the numbers build. And this is funny too, because I just did it. How long ago did I do it? Yesterday. There's a bunch of bees, they're swarming, they're collecting on a branch, on a bush that's not eh, eight feet off the ground. And they're still flying everywhere, there's chaos everywhere. So what did I do? I set up a hive right there that I'm installing another swarm in. So I took the swarm out of that everything bee vac. For those of you who don't know what that is, I did a video about it. But anyway, I'm installing a swarm from the everything bee vac. And what are they doing? They get on the front because they're newly being installed. They're spreading their pheromones, right? So their Nasanoff glands, are, their abdomens are as high as they can make them. They're just straight up and they're fanning as fast as they can go. And then I'm watching this bush that's not 12 feet away from where I set up the new hive. And I see bees that are hovering around that bivouac location changing their mind and coming over here. Now this is already a hive. So I'm actually stealing some of their group. But then I was also noticing some of the bees were leaving from the front of my hive and they're going to the bivouac bees. Now these are different swarms, but their dynamic changes. So they solidify their numbers while they're in the bivouac location and their scouts continue to go out. And here's the best part of that too. Because once they did and they flew off, the ones that were in the bush, I didn't care about them. I don't want them. There's too few of them. I don't know if their queens mated. There, there's a lot of variables. But they took off, right? Now, when they take off, the scouts go out, in some cases, by the hundreds when they're in the bivouac location. 
So even though they may have scouted out a final destination, even though they found a cavity they think is suitable, they still, once they bivouac, they still have to go out and scout again. So scouts go in all directions and they all come back and they're looking for a consensus. So it gives them a chance from now their new perspective, their new location to go out and find out what's going on. So that means some of the scouts might even be checking out this hive that I've just set up, but once they find that there's a queen in there, queen pheromone, they gotta go back, it's no good. So then they took off and they left to go wherever they're gonna go. And they weren't even there an hour. So that was interesting too. But now what happens is the scouts that were coming back to that spot, because now the pheromone, the residual pheromone on the tree, they have no way to find where that group of bees just went. They have two choices. They go back to the colony that they came from, which they obviously didn't like. That's why they left home in the first place. It was boring there. Or look, there's another pheromone coming from this hive right here and they have a queen. And then they were circling around here and corkscrewing down and then they went right in and joined up. So my hive, my swarm that I just put in that hive gathered the residual bees from that group too. So these bees are in flux. They can shift and change and 20% of a colony can be bees from other colonies. Now I know that's a very specific number to say it's 20%. People say up to 20% are bees due to drift. Bees drift all the time and join each other. So I think it benefits the bees by solidifying the group that's really with them while they verify the final destination and their numbers are swelling if their queen pheromone is stronger than any other queen pheromone in that vicinity. And it's just interesting stuff. So I don't have the bottom line for that. I just have interesting observations. And I think it actually does benefit the bees that they fly out and collect their numbers together. And then when they leave, they leave in mass. And not only that, there are bees that fly through them while they're heading to their new destination to correct their trajectory to make sure they go in the right direction. And they call those bees streakers. They circle around and they jet through the center in the direction that they want everyone to go. So they're also keeping them all going in the right direction by circling around and streaking through the middle of that swarm that's in transit, which moves on an average of six miles an hour. So those are my thoughts. You know, I don't know if there's any solid conclusion, but uh, I do see benefits to it for a lot of reasons. So then now that's it. Now we're in the plan of the week. This is the fluff section. So I just want to say, because um, we did talk about venting, even though you're in a hot climate, as long as you have fresh water available, you don't need to vent or provide upper entrances for your beehive. Uh, you might consider opening up your entrance reducer on your landing board a little bit. So if you see a lot of bees clustered on the outside, they're not necessarily, they're trying not to contribute to the warmth inside. Plus you might have a nectar flow on. Fresh water is the answer. Shade in some cases. Now, I hope that everyone that listens to me has an insulated cover on their hive and an insulated inner cover on their hive. Those two things are key in the survival of your bees and their ability to control an unvented cavity. So next, what else do we have? Counter pollen going in. This is a good time, by the way, to take stock in your bees and see what's going on. When should you do these counts? Afternoon, early afternoon. See how many pollen loads are going into the hive. If it's more than 10 a minute, 
it's probably good to go. And you need to look around at your other hives and see if the activity is low at the entrance and see what's going on there too. You may have had a swarm. You don't know what's going on. You might have a queenless colony. If it's queenless, we want to interfere with them before they start having laying workers, which means you've ignored your bees for 21 days or more. So be vigilant about the um, landing boards on your hives too. Sunrise, that's right, get up early, get your drink, go outside, it's just barely daylight, see what's on the landing boards because these bees are working overnight. And if you've got hygienic bees, they're dragging out the pupa and things like that. And where are they? They're on the landing board. If you go out there at 10 o'clock in the morning, you don't see anything. They've cleaned everything up by then. So you don't really know what's going on. It's a chance to see if they're cleaning things out, if they have problems, if they're discarding bees that have to form wing virus and things like that. So early morning checks, pollen counts in the afternoon. Mite counts, know your mites. Use some method, whatever satisfies your conscience, to count your mites. Bottom board counts show you that mites are present. Don't show you what the levels are. But we should expect low levels, no more than 2% this time of year. If you've got more than six mites in a 300 uh, B count, then you're at a level where you have to start thinking about what you're going to do with those bees. If you're in 20 or 30 mites that are coming out, when you're doing some kind of sugar shake or something like that, you're in a real pickle this time of year because those numbers are only going to increase. And the reason I bring that up right now is because this is your opportunity before your next nectar flow to get mites under control so they don't spread disease through your hives that will impact their ability to survive winter. So failing colonies, colonies that are queenless, but you don't want more bees. So you've got a queenless colony and uh, the brood is opening up. So now you can combine them with a stronger colony. So I highly recommend you do that. Now let's say you have two deep boxes, like you've got a deep brood box over here and they seem queenless, but you've got a deep and then you do mediums after that over here. You don't want to have two deeps on that stack. So what you do is you take your colony, the weak colony that you're combining, you're combining with the strong colony and put an escape board under it. So you put that box on top of the bee escape board. And then the bees will go through the bee escape and they'll join that other colony. And then you pull your deep box off and then you pull off your bee escape board and you put the cover back and you restore them. You've blended your bees. Okay. So <clears throat> let's see, combine failing colonies. Uh, Oh yeah, for those of you who have honey supers on that you don't want to keep stacking them up. We're back here beekeepers. We can kind of take the honey as we go, so to speak. So making sure that the boxes down below have the resources your bees need to get through winter. Deep box, medium super, as I described, full of honey. That's their insurance policy. Above that, if you start to inspect a beehive, you pull that inner cover and it is covered with burr comb. They are at risk of being honey bound. They really want to expand. So one of the ways that you can control that without expanding the colony is get your hive butler tote and put your medium frames that you pull. The totally capped ones are absolutely perfect. Shake the bees off of them and put them in that tote and you put a replacement frame in there for those bees. So you've got a full frame of honey. You pull the next full frame out. You've got a new foundation in there and you've got a full frame of honey. So every other one that's called checkerboarding. So then use them to draw a comb. Now, if it's later in the year, we still have plenty of time right now. But if you don't want to use comb that uh, 
you want to recycle back your drawn comb that's empty to these hives too. It keeps them going, it keeps them productive, and it will keep them from becoming honey bound. And you won't have to add boxes. The adding of the boxes is something commercial people have to do because they really time their their honey harvest so that they do all of the surplus, uh, all the supers at one time. Where the backyard beekeeper has the opportunity now, because what are we getting? We're getting clover and we're getting milkweed and stuff like that right now. So those honeys can be separated if we just draw the frames now and rotate them out, extract them as we go, keep them in some kind of tote where they're protected and then come back out and do the same thing with other hives. So it's a cascade of harvesting your honey as you go. The other thing is uh, we have skunks that have showed up again. So if you want to look around your hives to see what's uh, going on out there, if you see a bunch of smushed down grass and little muddy paw prints and little muddy prints on the front of your hives, they're being harassed and it can cause a change in the behavior of your bees. So if you walk out to what should be a passive colony of bees and instead they start stinging you or you're picking up guards when you're still 50 feet from the hive, something may be harassing your bees. So pay attention to predators and things that are harassing your bees at night. If you can't put cameras out there, look for signs. So look for signs of the ground being disrupted. And then, uh, so what I put out there yesterday, I put my noise makers out there. In fact, uh, when I found out that a skunk was harassing one of my nuke boxes, and it was really standing on its tiptoes because the box is about, the entrance is about 15 inches, but I like to tell people 16 to 18 inches puts them out of skunk range. This one was a little lower than that. So the skunk was feeding on them, it was obvious. And then so they went out there last night, so 2.30 this morning the alarms went off and the skunk uh, tried to feed there but couldn't stand the noise and left. So that's how I'm keeping them out. Those are my uh, suggestions for the week. Keep water available and uh, just keep up with your hives. Good chance to level things up and make sure it's all good to go. Thanks for watching me and spending your time with me today. I hope that you have a fantastic weekend with your bees. Thanks for being here. Thank you for watching The Way to Be. Thank you for watching The Way to Be. Thank you for watching The Way to Be. Thank you for watching. They do play first things first all day. What do you have to say, Quinn? Thank you for watching The Way to Be. Yes. All right. Now let's go outside and stare at some bees. So you think there's a swarm out there? Yeah. They do. What makes him. you What makes you think there's a swarm? They there's, do. There's, there's a bunch of bees. Um, and there's and there look. They're all gathering. They're going kind of. Um, they do for like a normal swarm. Cause I got a They all do the for hitting my face. Thank you for hitting your face. That's enough.